As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Welcome to this Toby Talks 2. In this episode, I'm catching up with a 125, 250, MotoGP, Supersport, Superbike, AMA, and probably many other categories that I've, well, maybe forgotten. But they have all made him into a world champion motorcycle racer, right up there in the elite of motorcycle racing. Coming from a quiet village in the depths of the Herefordshire Welsh borders in the UK, it really has been a story of fight, fight, and fight to the top. Similar to many, but having been witness myself to much of this through his 125 and 250 days, it really showed me what grit and determination all riders go through to get into a world championship, let alone winning it. Chaz Davis, good afternoon. How are you? Very good, thanks. Well, very good. It's maybe a bit bit strong. Just come back from a cancelled flight on the way back from uh, Mizano and um, five and a half hour trip for something that should have taken an, an hour. So traffic's been fun, but the weekend was uh, was good. So um, that's the main thing. We're home now and uh, looking forward to having a chat with you. And where is home for you at the moment? It's Andorra. Um, so I've been out here for seven years now, believe it or not, which has flown by. Um and yeah, came out here for uh, to put myself in a in a different environment, um, slightly different to Herefordshire and Wales. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I've been out here for for that length of time, and definitely really feels like I'm home now. Obviously, I've got not many reasons to be here anymore, but I I still love it out here, and uh, and yeah, definitely home for us. So. Mountains and sunshine and a bit of snow all in one. So you were in Mizano over the weekend. Uh, world superbikes you're not riding riding you're not racing in the championship so what are you doing at the moment in 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 davis world yes yeah, so, so um i'm the coach the rider coach um is my title if you will um for the aruba ducati superbike team um, and obviously i shared a, a long history with them with the factory ducati team which aruba um got involved with in 2015 and and since then it's sort of gone from strength to strength, being the factory, staying as the factory Ducati team. And um, thankfully, you know, I forged a good relationship during those years with the guys, both at the factory, um, but also with Aruba, um, who are the title sponsor and actually own the team. And also the um, the sort of independent party that uh, 
that orchestrates the whole show for Ducati, which is a company called Fuel Racing, um, and they are essentially the, say, service providers. So kept a good relationship with them, and as soon as I hung up my boots, they basically got in contact um, and said, you know, do I want to um, do I want to do this job? And obviously, yeah, it's a bit of, it was a bit of a no brainer. Um, and the, the job is, it sounds like, you know, I'm just talking with riders and my, my job will begin and end there, but it's actually a lot more than that. It's really a broad spectrum because I've got so much experience now with the bike, with the electronics package, with the engineers. And it's, I'm a little bit, I feel like of a, a bit of glue sometimes in the whole puzzle. Um, you know, there's some weekends where you can, I can bring a lot to the table and there's other weekends where it just goes, you know, hunky dory and, um, you know, sort of runs itself. But I think uh, it's a really important job in 2023 where you're looking at, you know, hundreds, thousands of a second and the devil is in the detail. And for me, it's, um, it's been a really good experience in that, uh, you know, I'm no longer the rider. I'm learning how to interact with people in a different way, how to bring, different, you know, clear, concise information across at the right time, deliver it. Um, you know, people have got t- limited time on the race weekend, so you need to grab their attention for a short period. Then you, um, you know, we're doing that with, with video and bringing all sorts of different technology in the mix, and that's sort of been received well. So, so far, so good. We won the championship with Alvaro last year. We're, we're leading it again this year. We're leading the World Supersport Championship. So, um I'd love to take a lot of credit, but there's a lot, a lot more clever people in the group than, than myself. Um, so no, it's a very much a team effort and an effort that, or a job that I'm enjoying. So, is there an element sometimes when the rider says something and you're stood next to the engineer, maybe at half past seven in the evening, and the rider's gone off for his tea, and you might say, "We tried this four years ago uh, in Germany," and sh- can you look back and see if that will work? Does that happen now and again? It actually does, yeah, yeah. Sometimes we're not so. I try not to draw draw too much on my past experiences because you never want to be the guy being like, "Well, I in my day, and, yeah, yeah," like not from from that standpoint, or even from a, a um, sort of a technical standpoint. You don't want to really influence the group based on your your experiences. Of course, to a certain extent, it's useful, but then you have to. You have to, you know, live in the present and and just evaluate it as it as it comes into you, kind of thing. Um, but there are certain things where I think, and something that I have realised probably more doing this job is is that sometimes engineers and riders, we you jump off the bike, you talk to them, you you think you're talking the same language, but actually, when you sit alongside the engineer after the fact the rider's gone away, he's gone for his di- gone for his dinner they're actually on a, a little bit of a different spectrum. Um, they're coming from a different angle. And then you go, oh, hang on a minute. They've not interpreted what I think the rider means. So we need to break this down a bit more. We need to dig deeper and things like that, where, um, you know, to an engineer, they've, they can't really ever put themselves in the shoes of the rider because it doesn't actually, they don't know what it feels like. So when the rider explains it to me, it's kind of, it's bread and butter, but to an engineer, he tries to translate that into numbers and to what he sees. And it's, you know, thankfully in Ducati, we've got fantastic engineers, but even the best guys can get it, you know, wrong sometimes. So just being the guy that is willing to sort of hang around in the pit box and make sure everything is, or if a question's asked to me, I can sort of give my response. And if it is a bit different to what they think, then, you know, sometimes you, you just 
start something where you open up a, a can of worms and get something, get a positive result out of it. So mm. that's the, it's a really interesting job. No, no two weekends are ever the same. And like I said, sometimes you bring a load and sometimes you bring a little, but that's the nature of, uh, nature of it really. Well, as you say, top of the table at the moment, uh, can't be that bad. Can't be that bad. So I mentioned the, the early days, um, it was probably inevitable that you were going to be a racer. Your dad was a former racer, and uh, there was a go-kart track outside the kitchen window. You were never going to be a carpenter. You were never going to be a farmer. You were never going to have another job. It was always going to be, wasn't it? Yeah, it kind of helps, doesn't it, when there's that <laughs> li- literally out the bedroom window. I can, um, well, if you paste it out, it's probably, what, 25 feet from my bedroom window to the uh, to the track, so... <laughs> Um, yeah, it wasn't too many other uh, things in the, um, on the radar when I was young, you know, in the career, career um, whatever you call it, at, at school. What do you want to be when you grow up? A bike racer. Well, uh, well, we don't sorry, have a box not, for that. That's, that's yeah. not on the list. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we're going that way. So, um, yeah, but you need to add the box. But no, um, yeah, to be honest, it was kind of feel in some ways it was I was never pushed into it definitely not by mum or dad even though it was dad's a complete petrol head he built the cart circuit but it was more of a I think for him um and mum it was more of a you know roll of the dice at a time this would be a good thing to do there's nothing in the area let's build a cart track and let's make it work and it started out um as you've probably seen the old pictures Toby it started out as a as a you know an old cow shed with a, a dirt buggy track in, in the garden, basically. And then it evolved into dad being able to make enough money to buy 26,000 construction blocks. And then he laid them by hand. And then that made enough money to, to turn it into something, you know, proper, like a proper cart track. But, um, you know, the, I don't think there was ever, ever, a, a, you know, some riders are like, right, you're going to be a bike racer and let's do everything we can. There was never that approach with me. Yeah. I had a go-kart track in the back garden, but there was never that, uh, oh, this is what we're doing and we're, you know, we are absolutely making it happen 100%. It was just kind of fell into it in some ways, happened to be not too bad at it, whether whether it was through fortune of having that in the garden or not. But, um, yeah, in the end, it, you know, it's all, it all has led to a career, so... So your mini motos on the go-kart track led to the Aprilia Challenge in the late 90s. Just tell people what a golden moment that was that defined, shall I say, even 15, 20 years of motorcycle racing. Who, who was alongside you on that grid? Yeah, it's silly now when you look back and look back at what, even the, the chancy things that's kind of brought this group together. So there was myself... Casey Stoner, Leon Camier, Craig Jones, Cal Crutchlow. Um, there was a, a small wave just after with like Jonathan Ray and Eugene Laverty. And, and by that, I mean like within a few years after, but in that period that like the super teams, as you just alluded to, was that Aprilia challenge was you know, such a golden group of, of talent. Um, probably now when <laughs> anybody outside the top five looks at the list, they go, actually, I wasn't too bad, was I? Um, but, uh, you know, wasn't Steve Day in it? So, yeah, Steve Day was in it. Yeah. yeah. So Steve Day um, was there. There was, there was loads of guys, a lot of good riders as well, guys that are still, still around and still going. And um, we were all, I grew up with Jonesy. I grew up racing him. Obviously, Casey came in like a, like a bolt of lightning from Australia and showed us all what to do and really raised the level that we had to then step up to so i think it was that kind of thing where i you know jonesy was probably a better minimoto rider than me 
he pushed me. Then we both get to super teams and um, the Aprilia Challenge. Then Casey comes along, and Leon Camia was always, you know, very solid in that in that time. And I was racing him at eighty CCs as well. So there was just like this kind of competition between us all, where I, I guess talent, somebody else's talent, brought the next guy on, and it it kind of went like that. And then. Cal was there as well. Cal was, I think Cal was there in the second year of Super Teen. So he wasn't in, he, I never raced him in Super, uh, in uh, Minimoto or anything like that. But still, Cal was, he was fast and he came in, you know, quite quickly to, to top results. He was never a teenager. Surely he went from 10 to, to 21 in one go. You know? yeah. he, 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 Cal Crutchlow was never young, was he? No, no I, I honestly don't remember much of Cal in those days. I remember all, all the other boys, but, you know, Cal, he really did appear quite quickly and sort of kicked on from that quite quickly. But yeah, he was definitely the, uh, the guy that grew up a bit quicker than the rest of us, I think. Yeah, yeah. And also, Whilst I was preparing for this, there's a picture in my mind's eye of you with the movie star Junior One Two Five Team Spanish Championship, and again with Casey, you know, and Alberto Pooch, who brought along arguably the best junior team for the future of motorcycle racing. Full stop. Definitely. What an experience that must have been. Yeah, and what he did in our time or in my time in that telefonica um with the telefonica group but also and then just after that what he went on to do and what he has gone on to do and um you can kind of i could fully see why when i met alberto for the first time he's the most intense individual you'll come across when it comes to being um when it comes to being a young rider being pushed to become a motorcycle racer Alberto is absolutely no holds barred. We'll tell you exactly what he thinks. He's got no time for small talk. He's just like so brutally honest. And there's only one thing in his head. It's like, right, go show me how fast you can go. So um, the only ever one bit of, um, I wouldn't even call it emotion, but what I got out of Alberto was in Harama in 2000 and 2000, it was, um, we were to, to, take a couple of steps back actually this so this movie star cup that was around in i think 98 99 was um was a one make series of 20 something bikes and that's where pedroza uh tony elias and a load of other names came from and alberto was at the front of that that got scaled back in the spanish championship where they scaled it back because they there was all these spanish kids coming through but there was no northern other northern europeans so what they did is they made uh they put eight entries into the full 125cc Spanish championship. So in amongst the the rest of the manufacturer's teams, everything, not a one-way championship anymore. And within that, there were four Spaniards and four uh, other nationalities, one being me, one being Leon Camier, one being uh, a German guy, and the other being Casey. Um, and we were all supposed to start with the same bike, uh, which was a bog-standard Honda. And it wasn't about winning the race. It was basically... Show me what you can do on this bit of kit. And um, we went to, I think, the first race in Horama went quite well. And then we went back there. It was the only race we did a double header at. And we went back there in the middle of the season. The only little bit of praise that I ever, ever, ever got out of Alberto was he basically, I asked him what lap time I should do on what he expected me to do on this kind of bike because it was way off. It was pretty uncomparable with anything else. And, uh, and then, so I went out, went out and practiced and qualifying was building up to the race. 
and I looked for him for to him for a bit of approval. I was like, "Am I like, am I close? Am I not close? What What do you think? How am I going?" Like waiting for some sort of reaction from him, and he said, uh, uh, "But you feel safe at this pace," and so that was the only that was his way of saying you're going fast. You're not over the limit, are you? Sort of thing. Um, that's gushing from emotion that, from him, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that, that's as good as you'll get from him. And he he's just, I mean, he's brilliant. He's brutal and he's brilliant, Alberto. He, you know, he, what you said at the beginning of this podcast, when you fight, 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 Alberto's words were, to me, always on the grid of a race or at any other point, really, you must fight, you must fight, you must fight. It was like always. Oh, really? He's got he's got some dog in him, <laughs> in the nicest mm. possible way. He <laughs> he is he's a real uh, I don't know. He's just a ball of um, I don't know. He just just wants to win. He's a, he's a, a, a real a real character as well. That led to the big wide world of one two five cc Grand Prix. How old were you when you went for your first Grand Prix at Suzuka? Fifteen. Stroll on. Not allowed to do that anymore, are you? <laughs> <laughs> and that in itself, if I look now, and this applies to me, Craig Jones, Casey, Camia, maybe not Casey, actually, a little bit older, 18 months older, but us three guys were, we were basically given a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a, a green light to go through. We had to go to these certain um, like days where you'd have Neil Hodgson watching us or Neil McKenzie was watching us on another day just to show that we could actually you know, stay on the bike and ride around and we're pretty competent. And that sort of opened the doors to be like, yeah, okay, he's only 12. Uh, you should be 13 or 14 to race this class, but he looks like he knows what he's doing. So we'll let you in. Uh, let, we'll let you in. And that sort of uh, shortcut the the route to get into Grand Prix then. So it was I, you'd never be able to do that now. Not not only has the age changed, but you'd never that would just never happen for insurance reasons. And it's not mm. it's not even that long ago when you think about it. It's twenty twenty years ago. Um, I suppose it is quite a long time. But <laughs> it is a long time ago, Chaz. But in, in the developed world <laughs> sort of sense, it's like insurance applied then. And is it really that much different? Are we really that much softer these days? Is, is it, you know, it would just never mm. be allowed. But anyway, that's how it worked out. So it ended up with me getting on the grid at 15. And actually, Jorge Lorenzo at that time was, when I was 15 in Suzuka, he was still 14. And he was only allowed to join, if you remember, in... Um, in the Spanish Grand Prix, which was the third race after it was uh, Suzuka, South Africa, and the Spanish Grand Prix, Jorge had turned of age and he was able to get on the grid. So, yeah, different times. <laughs> different times. What do you remember about that that first weekend? I mean, what I remember is that it was the first MotoGP weekend. So we were both there at a bit of a historic milestone. What do you remember most? Yeah, a couple of things, really. I remember it, it absolutely bucketed it down in... Uh, the 125 race and I think it dried up by the time the the GP class was on but it bucketed it down and my teammate led the race before he crashed crashed it was uh, Yaroslav Hulez um, I was in I think my eyes were as you know wide as saucepans I was just in it you know here I am I'm in Grand Prix I'm in Suzuka the, you know just probably all a little bit spun out by the whole um the whole whole thing but my teammate was leading the race. He crashed. It was absolutely, I probably rode pretty terribly if I remember um, well. And unfortunately, that obviously the, the, I think it was 2002, I think, I think it was 2002, unfortunately was, was um, you know, 
was the time when was it when Cato passed away? It was two thousand two no, or two thousand three. Was that three? Yeah. After. So yeah. sorry, I remember that being that was one of my standout Suzuka memories. Was uh, was that you know? So it was um, yeah. But that that first race was a. I mean, I think I was just completely spun out by the whole whole thing. To be honest with you, you only did a year in one two five. Was that a tall rider problem? It was. Yeah. I mean, I was I was too big for the bike absolutely and even when i jumped on the 250 that wasn't much bigger um it was only when actually simoncelli came through where aprilia said oh, okay well maybe we do need a little bit of a longer seat and they made something actually we fashioned something up the team made something for me which they ended up basically using for marco but um going back to 125 it, it was it was that had i done a decent season who knows maybe i would have stayed in 125 another year but circumstances uh, were I mean I'm pr- probably sure a lot of people have have heard about it, but at that time the a bike it wasn't the same opportunity afforded to the riders, was it? You know, a, the difference between a factory bike and a something you could buy was just day and night. night. Day, the, t- yeah. the tire yeah. situation, day mm. and night. It was just very different, com- completely different uh, a race. Basically, you look back on it um, now, and it was a bit wild west, really, wasn't it? It was a bit. I guess that was the way it was. And probably people 20 years before me will say, oh, you were lucky because, you know, at least it was somewhere near. You're only 10Ks an hour down in a straight line. Mm-hmm. But, you know, 10Ks an hour is 10Ks an hour on a 125. Um, but also the whole situation, you know, I was placed in Grand Prix by Dorna through the Spanish Championship, through having sort of showed myself a little bit. Um, I was placed there by Dorna into a team which already had two riders signed up who were bringing good budget. And Dorna said, if you want your grid spots, you need to take this rider and we'll give you, I think it was something like 150 grand, whereas they were getting 300 grand from the rider that they did. Have. So it just didn't start off. My Grand Prix career, I can categorically say, did not start off on the right foot. And it, I mean, it was, you know, the, the dream soon turned into a bit of a nightmare off that because... You know, you've got somebody you're trying to prove yourself to somebody that doesn't want you there and mm. as you know those old two strokes they were they had to be run on the knife edge all the time so new pistons every day and and whatnot and the team that i ended up being with were basically like okay how, how can we not spend money here how can we keep it as the bike as safe as possible safe doesn't mean fast safe just means the bike goes for a couple of races before changing a piston mm. started my home grand prix on used tires just like you couldn't make it up but or character building, as they say. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you can look back on it and you can laugh about it. You're smiling now in your kitchen, but there were a couple I'm of Sunday sure, I'm evenings. I'm sure my dad could still get fired up about it. <laughs> he was he was he was up for a bit of scrapping. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and your mum, bless her, uh, uh, you know, a few head shakes on a Sunday evening. But um, we can genuinely laugh about it now. But it wasn't yeah. funny at the time or on the Monday morning at the airport. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. You, you you did a GCSE at Mugello on a Wednesday or a Thursday or a Friday or something or other. I'm not misremembering that, am I? No, bang on. I think it was a Friday because <laughs> I think um, basically the rule was uh, my team, my sorry, not my team, my school were really good. To be fair, looking back, because they were they did try everything to try and make sure that I um, that I did sort of get through my GCSEs and. We had a bit of a deal. It was basically like, I want to go racing. I am going racing and I don't mind catching up and doing like extracurricular work after school, whatever, but I need to go and go and do this. And they were like, yep, yeah, you can do it um, as long as you do do what we ask. So that was fair enough. And uh, then when it came to doing the exams, a lot of them fell over that race weekend of Magello. So um, the thing is with it is you, you can't... To, People are allowed to take them in a different um, location, but they have to be run sort of parallel at the same time as they're they're done at the school. Because the then the mate so, can't tell his mate what the what the questions are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was that situation, and I got to. We found a, a tutor. He sat alongside me, and I basically had to lock myself in a room at the above the the pit garages in Magello, I think it was on Friday. I'm not even sure if maybe it was on one on Monday because we couldn't get back in time. I had to sit a couple of exams just <laughs> basically above the pit box, bikes warming up below me and whatnot and you know, slightly off-putting. But um, no, we got we got it done. I got through them. In the end, I did sort of what was asked of me and probably got a pretty useless result. But uh, there we go. <laughs> Have you been back to school? Um I have, yeah, actually, yeah. We had an event there um, quite a few years ago now, but yeah, no, it's it's nice when you see, you know, when you when you have that support, which is difficult, I think, these days because people get fined for taking your kids out of school, and you know, my school were perfectly reasonable about it, and I think, uh, I mean, there's got to be a balance somewhere, isn't there? Probably yeah. it's a bit too far the other way these days. Everybody's got to have some flexibility in life. Everybody's got to have something there. Um, into 250, uh, you were with Dieter Stappard's Aprilia Germany squad. He was a guy, Dieter Stappard, for those of you listening who may not know the name. He was the team boss of this 250 squad, but in a, in a previous life, he used to run BMW Motorsport uh, on four wheels. Formula One engine deals with Bernie Ecclestone and Brabham, and he helped Gerhard Berger get into Formula One. He knew uh, Jochen Rintz, and he'd been around motorsport all his life. What were the main things you learned there? Um, I think being with Dieter, firstly, you always Dieter was such a good-hearted uh, human that you always knew that you know maybe he didn't have the financial resources of a factory team or even some other private teams, but everything that could go on the bike or he could do to be better or to 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 make you feel better or anything like that, he always did. And it was the first time you sort of, well, my first time in Grand Prix where you really felt like you were, you know, everybody was on your side. It and was a team. 
this this was a yeah this was a team and this was a starting point to get going in grand prix and this was uh this is the environment that we need around us to to sort of kick on and try and try and get some results yeah okay we we've, we've said that what happened in 125 happened i'm i got too big for the bike but now is an opportunity and being with Dieter and his level of experience and also, um, you know, he had scored some really important results before that, you know, with Jeremy Williams and had a lot of people, including mechanics and crew chiefs, come through his team where you just knew that you were in good hands. Um, and that for me was was probably the biggest part about it. There was no, you you couldn't second guess anything. It was like the bike was the bike was okay, not exceptional, but good enough. And we were up against other people in similar similar situations. So it's basically, can I be the best privateer? That's what's sort of expected of me. Can I get into that point where, okay, I'm, I was only 16 at that stage, but can I chip away at it? Can I get in amongst, you know, being the strongest guy on the non-factory bike? So that was the goal. And that was a point that we got to not every weekend, but we got to it several times, quite a, quite a bit. And I think, um, you know, during those years with Dieter, that was, uh, you know, they, they really sort of like helped me, but you know, give me some confidence in myself and, um, and that kind of thing. And it was, yeah, it was brilliant. 250 turned into the American dream. 600 Super Sport was your thing stateside. How in the world did you go from 250 to, to 600 in AMA? What was the link? Uh, not by um, choice, really. So I was, I, I spent 2003, 2004 and five with Dieter. Um, and we had some really good results at the end of 2004, a couple of top fives, um, and we were going well. And basically that should have been the time where things really went up a level for both me, maybe with Dieter, um, in terms of getting a better bike, but obviously money talks and we never, we never found that. But actually for 2006, I, I thought I was riding a semi-factory bike that had just released this or sort of recycled <laughs> the previous year's factory bike and we're calling it a semi-factory bike called the Aprilia LE and it was me Sylvain Gintoli I think Alex de Bon um who all had this bike and um basically that I moved to the Campatella team um and they had found this big sponsor who promised the world and in short delivered nothing and didn't pay a penny um so quickly I soon realized after I think three races when we go back to Europe that it couldn't carry on. Campitella did what they could with bits that they had. My bike was the a bitzer made out of stuff that they they just had lying around, and it was you know everything they could do just to keep the thing going on the track. But they were thinking that they had I don't know how many million euros to to get this thing going, but they they had nothing. So they made this bike you know from themselves, mm. and then I think it, I think Le Mans was possibly my last race. I think it was round four or something like that, and basically there was a mutual agreement that can't go on. We've got no money. The sponsor's not paying. Sorry. And that was it. That was really the, apart from the odd dabble with the Honda here and there, I think at the British Grand Prix, there was a couple of rides popped up, but really there was nothing, um, nothing particularly inspiring or competitive or solid. So I was at home on the cart track, uh, literally washing a cart, um, phone rings, Jeremy Williams. Now, Jeremy never calls me, but um, I got along with Jeremy quite well. I spent quite a bit of time with him in Grand Prix. And, and he says, look, uh, I've been in America. I've done these couple of races. There's a team here. They're very small. They're a private team, but great people. They want to know if you're interested. And the first thing that 
popped into my head was like, it's kind of a AMA I've always seen as uh, I might go there to make a few quid when I'm 40 or something like that. But that's definitely not on the radar. Then I just had a bit of a reality check and like, well, hang on a minute. Look what you're doing. You stood. Yeah. <laughs> piss wet through. <laughs> washing a cart in the on the Hereford or Wales border. Get on that plane. Let's go racing again. Yeah. And uh, stop being a snob. I, exactly. I was. I, I literally had to, you know, catch myself in the moment and go like, "What are you doing? And uh, what are you even like? What are you even thinking about? You have nothing going for you in this life. So get just get on with it. Do it. Try it. And um, well, you have got something going for you. You can ride a motorcycle. So go and do yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. So I, <laughs> that, that was it. You know, that was the catalyst that then led to that another opportunity for me to set, stay with that team in. Um, in 2007 and it was all a bit of a chancy encounter really with you know jeremy making that call um i don't know if i've ever bought him a beer for that but i probably should um i think i think you should <laughs> and you know you won't get away with one no yeah it's gonna be an expensive <laughs> night but it'll be worth it there's always a good time around that, that that man um but yeah so that was that was that and then that just kicked on through and, and led to other chancy encounters really um, but that was that was really the kind of reboot that that, um, that I needed. Ch- and it, Ch- it was- Chancey encounter. You won the Daytona two hundred. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in two thousand eight, won the Daytona two hundred. That was you know weird. He's, he's very polite, isn't he, listeners? He's very <laughs> he's very humble about it. <laughs> but actually, that was a nightmare of a season. Two thousand eight was horrendous. But the the best thing about it was you know that D- Daytona race. There's uh, there's not. To, you know, it's, it's not the race that it was, but it's still something to be proud of. Everything kind of went wrong and then it went right for us in that race. And, um, yeah, one of those things to look back on with, with a fair bit of pride. But, um, yeah, it was uh, a bit of, um, you know, fell into the American thing, loved it, got a bit of enjoyment back in racing or a lot of enjoyment, found a great environment again, people that were going racing for, for the fact of let's go racing, not uh, how much money can we make or save or or whatever. So it was. Um, did it was did you a, buy a camper and drive around America? No, I, I just sp- spent a lot of time with Barry Gilson, and who was the owner of the team um, that I wrote for was Celtic Racing. Uh, that was two thousand and seven, and spent a lot of time with him. He he loves loved driving the motorhome around, so I just jumped in with him and just went from from race to race a lot of the time and lived the American dream basically. Good for you. Good for you. And of course, I've got a picture in my digital hard drive of you putting your leathers on. Pramac, not probably not your leathers. They won't be your leathers, of course, Toby. They won't be your no, leathers. They're, Hoffman's. They were Hoffman's leathers because you're about the same size, aren't you? At Laguna, and I remember running into the box, going, "Bloody hell, chap! You're going to do it!" <laughs> <laughs> because Alex I Hoffman looking was. Looking at you, going, yeah. What the hell am I about? To do? do you remember it? Yeah, it was just. I do. Yeah, I was shitting myself. Hoffer's got got punted off at the top of the corkscrew in the morning, and they went right. Well, we better find somebody who can ride a Pramac Ducati in the afternoon. And the first time you were going to ride a rip snorting Ducati fire breathing MotoGP bike was around Laguna. Was yeah, first time at Laguna, as well. Oh, your so... first time in the six hundred at Laguna as well. Yeah, I had not been out yet. I hadn't been on track. So the first taste of Laguna, the first taste of MotoGP, Bridgestone tires, you name it, everything was Carbon thrown at discs. Me. At second session, it was as well, because obviously the incident with Sylvan and uh, Hoffman happened in FD1. And I was, I think I was fourth or fifth name on the list. I wasn't really probably 
by rights should have been on the list, but there was a lot of people ahead of me, your Bostroms and even other guys in America. I think Miguel Duhamel and there was like, oh, I think Hodgson was sort of looked at, but everybody was under contract. So there's literally no option. So they came knocking to me. I don't know how it came about, whether it was through, it was definitely through Livio and uh, Dan, uh, Louis Dantin, but I think maybe Livio knew of me because of Casey, spent a little bit of time with him in Livio's uh, company. So yes. I think I think that sort of, that all happened. And then before I knew it, yeah, I was in Hoffman's leathers. And you, you couldn't actually make it up because my first, I remember leaving pit lane a little bit late. I want to, you know, I want to learn this track quietly without people flying past me. And I don't want to be going out at the front of everybody just to get, you know, absolutely duffed up while I'm trying to, Figure my way around here, uh, figure my way around this bike. And so I left it a bit of time and then did my outlap, come around for my first flying lap, go over the crest, turn one, uh, then turn two, doubles back on itself, then the turn three, the right-hander. First person to pass me there um, on the outside, I believe, Valentina, of course. Like, who else is it going to be? And I was just like, you know, uh, you know you're, uh, you're really in the deep end here. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, it was an amazing weekend. And actually, just talking then of chancy encounters, I did enough during that weekend and set a couple of laps in the race. And it was literally a couple of laps where I kind of got up to speed with the bike. I understood the track a bit, and I did a couple of laps towards the end of the race where they were like I was two to like two tenths off what Valentino was doing. It was really wow. not a lot at all. Wow. And like I said, it was just like. I pushed hard for a couple of laps because we had a sprocket broke on the bike. So I was a lap down and whatever. And I was, I went back out, same tires. And if, and at the end of it, people were like slapping me on the back and going, oh, I can't believe it. And they were sort of, they saw, saw more out of the, those couple of laps than what I did. I was just sort of like, right, I'm going to push this thing. And I was a little bit blind faith into what was, what had been told to me, which was basically, you can't high side this bike. I was just pinning the thing everywhere. <laughs> this is, you know, everybody had that at that time that, you know, oh, it's got traction control. You can't high side it. And as it, as it was, Laguna was not long resurfaced. I think maybe the year before when it was scorchingly hot um, and it had that time to settle and the Bridgestone there, I have never felt grip like it. It was phenomenal. And I was literally like, I can't even spin this thing, let alone high side it. Um, so from that, I was just like, well, it seems like, you know, what the engineers are saying is true. I'm not going to go against what a factory Ducati technician is telling me. So there I was just gunning the thing everywhere, happened to go quite fast on it. And that led to me getting a few more races at the end of the season. And they offered me the Bridgestone, um, test rider, con oh, sorry, the Ducati test rider, um, deal, which was, uh, at that time it was more Bridgestone based, but it was the factory Ducati team, uh, Livio Super basically sent me the contract and everything, which I turned down. Still don't know whether it's the right move or not. But I remember um, talking about it with you as a bit of a between the trucks, what do I do? And yeah. I oh it was devil you do, devil you don't, and you just have to make a decision. Yeah, and I did that and it was one of those things having been away from racing for a bit and just got that enjoyment back through two thousand seven. I was like, I don't I don't want to step away from this again. I'm on I feel like I'm on a path now in in America, but I'm loving America. And if that's what it is, then that's what it is. Like if I can make a career out of this sport, then I want to do that. I don't want to be back to, you know, okay, it's 
factory Ducati team, but it's still test riding. You're still, you know, being asked to try tires that who knows what might happen. So to me, it didn't, it wasn't quite right. The money and everything was fine. It wasn't so much about that. Um, Some people think you're absolutely crazy for turning down that sort of opportunity. But on the other hand, I had my reasons and I kind of went with my gut and it, it didn't, it didn't work out. I had a horrendous year in 2008, apart from Daytona. And then I was kind of back to square one at the end of 2008 again, with again, picking up the pieces. But luckily, again, people remembered in Europe, remembered that I had done a couple of races, MotoGP went quite fast. It was that kind of thing where, um, yeah, you know, just led to the next, the next thing really. Well, America was good for you because that 600 journey in America pinged onto the World 600 Championship. I mean, Supersport World Champion 2011. Um, it all worked out at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, if I think America was good for me in the fact that I was, you know, you're you're now a man. You go and stand on your own two feet. You you go and racing by yourself, and it's sort of a for me. It was a, a lot of like looking at yourself in the mirror and going do you want to do how much do you want to do this and it wasn't that I was never I was I always felt like I was I put a lot into it but I I really applied myself through like the late noughties like through 08 9 more 9 I think 10 11 and then things just started snowballing for me so I I really felt like I had improved a lot as a rider in that period so I've worked figured myself out a little bit was a bit more comfortable in my own skin knew what worked for me in racing terms like what how i needed to train and piecing the puzzle together a bit some guys get this when they're 15 or even younger but for me it didn't come to a bit later where i was like i really started getting a bit of confidence in myself found how i needed to ride the bike to get the best out of myself um and as i said yeah snowballed into you know, winning that World Supersport Championship in 2011, which I'd have never thought would have happened. If you'd have asked me that at any point from 2002 to 2011, I'd be like, I'm watching guys that I've grown up with go on to win World Championships, to win World Championship races, fighting at the front. All the guys that we mentioned before, you know, they were they were having a lot of success in a time where I was basically going... Uh, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to do anything in this sport, like do anything really meaningful. Um, and then things did start going right. And yeah, I, it wasn't by luck. Like I did, you know, have a lot of conversations with myself and, and really probably changed mindset a little bit in those years. And yeah. I, I, I obviously watched your super sport races on the box. I wasn't at the track. And as, as a friend, you, I watched you lose your temper one day, and I thought, oh, I've never seen you lose your temper. But I thought, oh, that's a good thing. That's a good thing because I, you know, when you're on a one two five and you're fifteen at Suzuka, or you're at Laguna and Valentino's riding around the outside, you're a bit, hang on a minute. Whereas when you're confident enough, if that's the wrong expression to lose your temper and go right, whether or not it was with yourself, or I think it was the bike. Didn't you have a problem mm. at Imola or something or other, and the bike went wrong? Yeah, was, yeah, within yeah. Touching distance of the of the that's what it was a touching distance of the championship but it all worked out at the end of the day um and that's passion and that's emotion and that's pride that i saw on the television it is i found myself in that situation you know we look some people some people take to that badly and others you know say well you know you're showing that you want it um and there's two definitely two ways of looking at it and there's two ways i always question myself after i do after you call off a little bit and 
know, I've done things where I go, maybe, you know, maybe I went a bit too far then, you know, you're, you're wound up, you're in the moment, nothing's going right. You feel, you know, one year I felt like things were slipping away from me in World Super, I kind of lost my temper in thinking Bruno and, you know, yeah, you just do it in the moment. You're, you're fired up. You're trying to, you know, trying your absolute best, but nothing's going right and wrong thing to do, possibly, probably, but, um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes it works, it works the opposite way. People will go like, Oh shit. Yeah. Like he, he actually he means business. is annoyed. We need to do something here because yeah. we've got to, so it's worked for and against me, I would say. Yeah, it certainly wasn't a criticism. It was just that 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 change from Suzuka two thousand and two, uh, and then you're in World Superbike, um, and if I'm not fast tracking, but you know, thirty two race victories in World Superbike, more than Colin Edwards. You know, <laughs> it even sounds play. weird to me just you <laughs> say, saying that there. I mean, not the thirty two number, but when you speak about people like your your Edwardses or Hodgson, Toslands, these are all guys that. Again, there was so much of my career where I'd have just, I mean, not even just to be on the grid. I'd have been all right with that. Not not to go on to podiums, wins. That was something I didn't ever see happening to myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been all right. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, it's been all right. Work to Catty Ryder. How cool was that? Where, where did you get your phone call? Work to Catty Ryder. Um, so it was actually a conversation at the track. It was. Uh, between myself and the guy called Alberto Vagani, who you may know from Nolan Helmets, X-Lite. He's now um, not part of the, the Nolan X-Lite group anymore, but he, he's been a manager over the years for Carlos Checa um, and Melandri and a few others. And he was managing Checa in 2013 when the, when the V2 Panigale was, uh, that was its first year. And I was running for BMW. And, we were having a conversation at, in Turkey and he said, we were talking about my options because I was using um, or I was going to be using X-Lite for the following year. And he said, well, why don't you ask Ducati? And at the time, nobody really wanted to ride that bike because it was dog slow. Checker was hurting himself every five minutes on it. And it just didn't look very appealing at all. And um, he said, no, they're, they're going to make some more effort next year. It's going to come back into factory hands and da 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 so the conversation started from there, really. And the base for me was, at that time, it wasn't a factory team. but the, So the, the minimum I was looking for was a two-year deal because I had gone the previous 10 years never sitting on the same, uh, sorry, since 2004, never sitting on the same seat for two years running. So I was like, I need some stability. Whatever happens, good or bad, we need. I need to sit on the same package here for two years because I can see the bike's not ready, but hopefully year two, we can do something with it. Um, and as it happened, Ducati did come back as a factory team and they did employ Gigi Delinia. So it was just um, great timing in the fact that the, the, the effort became back to what it was sort of in the Bayless days um, where you had this you know, all the want from the factory again and they they had a lot to do with that bike it was so far away initially 2014 we we had some okay results but it it took a while um but eventually we got there with it and it in the in the end it was a championship challenging package and at times the best bike on the grid so um yeah i mean it was it was great those were great 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 years and also sort of really enjoyed working with a factory as well working so tightly with Ducati because 
mean, it's Ducati for a start, but really when you're, when you're a Ducati rider, I think it's something that when you have a result on home soil, like, I mean, home soil for them, like an Imola, that is something that I don't think that any rider would get to experience that level of sort of like the Tifosi. <laughs> it's, it's all a bit mad. And to me, it was every time we go to Imola, win a race or do something all right there, we sort of like pinching yourself that, you know, these things are going on because for me, it was, it was just all a bit, a bit surreal. And it was that, that was the, at that point, I really got what it was like to be a Ducati rider. Um, and yeah, <laughs> in, it was, uh, you know, it's very special. You learned quite a bit of Italian, didn't you? Yeah, I did. As, well, I, I joined an Italian team in 2000 and uh, the last race is 2009. So when I got into World Supersport, that was with, a, with an Italian uh, team. So I started knowing nothing. And then 10 years later, you know, as it should be, it was, it's quite all right. So now I can, you know, I can get by an Italian quite well. And um, yeah, it's uh, another, another one of racing's gifts, really. It's not, it's not just about what's going on on track because it's the people you meet and the, uh, you know, the things you get to experience and also learning languages, cultures, all the rest of it. It's uh, definitely something to be pretty thankful for. Did you get an RS6? I did. Oh, <laughs> never speaking to you ever again yeah I, actually no it was an rs7 sorry tell a lie i got oh, an, RS, an rs4 <laughs> and then an rs7 and i did smash them both up no <laughs> oh Chas davis that's a difficult conversation to your boss isn't it Joe, you know i didn't feel too bad the the rf4 was a little bit of a problem but it got fixed on insurance and i had that one when i was still living in the uk so that was 2014 um, the RS7 were, had a tough life with me and my wife. She hit a bus with it, or the bus hit her, as she likes to say. But, That's um, what I'd like to say, yeah. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I ended up jumping it off this, um, unbeknown to me, there was a big drop-off, and I was in a rush to get to Phillip Island one year, and I just hard left into a petrol station. And unbeknown to me, there was this step-off there, a step-off into the petrol station, and it was I literally didn't see it. I jumped a foot off this wall and before before I knew it, it was too late and I tried to give it throttle like it was a motocross bike to, to jump over it. And obviously- Which made just, it even worse. Bottomed out and ripped all the undercarriage out. <laughs> and uh, I had it patched up. And anyway, when I gave it back, it didn't feel so bad because they told me, well, it was something like a pre-production car. Um, so it couldn't be sold on. It was just in the fleet of um, what they had at the between Audi and the factory Ducati. Um, and it would go to the crusher anyway. So I was, I was like, just about to say it was oh, going right. to go to the crusher. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they've done that before, haven't they, Chaz? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Motorcycle <laughs> races and hire cars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. What was your best moment on a bike? Was it that Imola moment or was it? Super Sport Championship. What was the hang on a minute moment? Oh, there's been a lot. Looking back now, I mean, I think probably the thing that I'm most proud of—not one individual moment, but actually uh, winning with 
four different bikes. So the Aprilia, um, the Aprilia, was it RS, RSB? Yes, RSB. Yeah, RSB 1000. The BMW, um, the Ducati V2, and the Ducati V4. Um, because I think like you can, I want to say luck into a ride, but there could be, if you're good in the wet, you know, you can luck into a win. Sorry. If you're good in the wet, you can score a wet win. Possibly if things work in your favor in a dry race, you could win there, but it's difficult. I think to win, to, to prove versatility and to prove that you can do it on different bikes and also dig yourself out of difficult situations where the Beamer probably wasn't the best bike on the grid, but it, we made it work now and again. The Aprilia wasn't by any stretch of fat, factory team, but I had Max Biaggi telling Gigi that he needed to slow my bike down because it was, uh, I was going too fast and was too threatening to him. So things like that, where you're like, okay, we've, um, when I look back on it, that that's probably the thing that to me, I, I would be most proud of rather than just the one individual win. I've had a lot of, a lot of key moments and I could never make my mind up like which, how do they all rank? But that, that uh, looking back on it, I think that's that's something that I'm pretty you know, proud of. Mugello or Mizano? Mugello, all day. Biaggi or Lorenzo on a 250? I mean, Jorge was pretty special. So was Biaggi, but uh, having raced against Jorge and the things that he could do, um, maybe that just hits home a bit harder because I've ne- never raced Biaggi on a 250. Would you buy back your 250 or your 600? I've got my 600 or I've got a version of my 600. Yeah. So it's, yes, it's not me. the absolute yes. real deal, but it's, it's all right. Um, but actually, <laughs> I'll tell you a story. In 2013, uh, sorry, 2012, going back to the year with Aprilia, in to at the end of the season when Max was fighting for the championship with Tom Sykes um, obviously there's a lot of uh, it was very tight between them and it was before the weekend started there was Gigi had come to to me being the satellite Aprilia rider basically can you help Max and I my reply was of course I can because we were also talking about a contract for the following year um, but basically what's in it for me um, these things don't happen without that kind of conversation. They never, they never do, and they never, <laughs> they they never should in future. Um, and I said to, I think he was expecting a figure. Basically, if I roll the gas on the last lap and Max Biaggi goes on to win the world championship for Aprilia for himself, what's in it for me? This is a big deal to a lot of people, so it has to you know come with the right terms. And um, so I, he said, "Well, what are you expecting?" And I said. A 250 Aprilia factory, factory one. And he looked at me like I was, like I was mad. And uh, I was like, yeah, no, I'm serious. Like the last one with a little bit of traction control, running order, I want all the nuts and bolts, but Full that's what I go for. I don't know what sort of value they were at that time. You know, secondhand one of those, I'm sure there was a, a shed of them somewhere. Very valuable these days by all accounts. I'm kicking myself that I wasn't, wasn't fast enough on that weekend to help Max, but um but anyway, that was uh, so. Going back to your question, I would buy and should have bought a really good two hundred and fifty Aprilia because that is a bike and a half. And actually, Gigi's got a very lovely collection at his house. He's got a, a nice little museum with some cool bikes in there. The irony that he was with Aprilia and you're both with Ducati. Yeah, you know, 
everything comes full circle, isn't it? It does. Everything comes full circle. Um, would you have a Ferrari or would you have a McLaren? Neither. But yeah, or not. neither. I'm just... Yeah. Do you know what? That answer doesn't surprise me. Yeah, no, you I'm happy with my van. Me... <laughs> Cars don't do it for me. They just give me two wheels all day. My trials bike in the mountain, my van. Nah. So what have you got in the garage or not now? Um, yeah, well, I've got... I've got the van. Yeah. <laughs> That's the four wheels. Um, we, I've got a trials bike. I've got rid of a mot- motocross bike and my old supermoto. I've got a supermoto because I enjoy it. Um, don't ride enough, but I do enjoy that. Because there's got, a track in Andorra where you can go and have a whiz. There is, yeah. Unfortunately, we've not got the climate. Um, you know, there's still snow up there probably. So <laughs> you've got three months a year where that track's functional uh, and warm enough because so, it's at 2,400 meters. So a bit high um but but yeah so here i've, I've actually got a super Leggera, um v2 ducati which is a cool bike and it's number seven of 500 so special in um in that way as well so yeah i've got i've got a couple of nice bikes i've got my old um 2018 the f18 uh factory Superbike. so that's in the uk if there was one bike that i would you know i've got the most affinity with throughout my career would be absolutely hands down that v2 um ducati so i kind of when the opportunity came up i was like yeah i have to have it i had to buy it but i had to have it <laughs> well um uh, you've done you've done very well from uh, from humble beginnings um you know we've uh, shared hire cars and done all sorts of bits we can look back and we can we can uh, we can have fond memories we can have fond memories um there was a, there was a, um, a, a, a premium number telephone line, and I recorded it for your friend. Didn't we call him Frank Thomas or Andrew Thomas? Yeah, Andrew Thomas. We called him Thomas. Frank. That was his nickname. Called him Frank. <laughs> I called him Frank because he was called Andrew uh, Leathers, by the way. And um, we did a phone line, and it was you know guess the multiple choice question, and you could win some tickets to the British Grand Prix. And we did that for a few years on the on the trot. And I saw your mum at one of them on a, because she kind of looked after the, the prize winners. And I saw her on about the Saturday evening. I said, oh, are they having a good run? And they said, she said, no, they got so sunburned on Friday, they went home. <laughs> These poor guys, they'd won this competition and they got paddock passes and garage and pits and everything. And it was quite, you know, you, they don't give those paddock passes away. But yeah, it was good, good days, good days. Yeah, good days. and that was, and that's what it was then. And when you look back at that, that was all that money that because it was Valencia every year wasn't it and you were playing oh, enough, you, oh. you helped us we did, out and we did, did one did at Donington the, we did one at Donington because it was a one at Donington as well yeah and um but that uh all the fundraising from that basically went into the kitty for the following year to be able to pay, pay for flights and hire cars and hotels and all the, the other the rest of the carry-on that you needed so it was all you know it was a great a great thing at the time good fun good fun but you're enjoying life that's the main thing I am, yeah. I mean, I've got rid of the, the stresses of racing and I, to be honest, don't really miss it that much. Some people can't live without it. And I spoke to a few riders when I, when I had made the decision, um, to, to, you know, call it a day and, oh, you know, it's the worst time of your life. You're going to, you're going to be depressed. You know, I'm just, you know, keep those close around you. And I'm there thinking, well, I'm pretty happy at the minute. I'm not. I'm nowhere near depressed. I feel like a weight's been lifted off my shoulders. I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, people are all cut differently, aren't we? And some people really can't live without it. I, I couldn't live without riding a motorcycle. That certainly would probably do me in. You know, I get my kicks in the week from riding a trials bike here in Andorra up the, up, a, up the hills. But, um, 
actual racing. Well, you went to Malaysia the other week. Yeah, I went to Malaysia just doing like some schooling, so some coaching work with um, with Ducati, um, which again, you're on two wheels, teaching somebody else how to do it. It's it's all good fun. Um, and yeah, it's not racing. The, not really that bothered about being, uh, you know, being the, the center of attention or anything like that. So it's, to me, there's a time and a place for everything. And racing, for me, it was quite a toll mentally. I think that a lot of riders go through it and some people need that, you know, keep feeding, scratching the itch, so to speak. But for me, it was like, I'm happy with, with the way things have gone. I could kind of see that things weren't on the right trajectory. I possibly maybe kicked myself after the, the 2020 season, um, I finished third in the championship, won the last race, and I was I was flirting with the idea at that point. I mean, you know what? Is it is this the time? Because I was already sort of being demoted to to a non factory team the year after, and I was like, this is the writing on the wall. You know, asking yourself those questions, and and then if you're already asking yourself those questions, then I feel like probably if it's in your head and you've got things you're looking around, you've got family. That to me was a little bit of a sign, and I went I went again, and I was kind of forcing myself into it. Um, a bit, you know, forcing myself into the right mindset, and 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 that was all all fine because I could, I mean, I genuinely believe I could do that again today. That it all it is all mindset. If you apply yourself, and you know, from experience, you know what it takes to get you into the into the right mindset and also into the right condition to go racing. You can get there, but it's the the want, and I think that's that's kind of burnt out a little bit with me. It's the I've fought and I fought and I fought for a lot, a lot of years, and I think it's, uh, I think it caught up with me, uh, as it does a lot of people. I think. I won't then ask you the last question. Do you want to go into team management? Because arguably that can be more stressful than riding the flipping bike. <laughs> well, my next door neighbour, practically twenty metres that way, um, over to my side here is Leon Camier, and uh, as the team manager for Honda, I see. He's um, he's working pretty hard these days, so um, I won't be jumping into that. Put it that way. <laughs> but uh, obviously, it's I'm just privileged to be involved in in racing still, and I'm still it's not a real job, is it? We're, I'm still uh, you know enjoying this thoroughly, enjoying what I'm doing. I'm I'm still looking to do more and looking to find uh, different avenues and explore all opportunities. I basically told myself when I retired, I just say yes to everything, whatever comes up. You never know. Uh, and see where it takes you and just enjoy what you're doing. If it's a real drag, obviously, I'd rather spend time at home with my family. But for the most part, it's a pleasure what we get to do or what, what I get to do and yeah, just try and you know, get involved in it. Well, you said yes to that phone call from Jeremy McWilliams and that was exactly the right thing to do. Chaz, a, a pleasure as always. Level heads on uh, very solid shoulders um, you're very humble. I think that's uh, extremely a, a, a huge uh, talent that you've got to be so humble because there's a lot of people who are all a bit look at me, as you know, in the sporting world. But I think uh, I think it's been wonderful to uh, to have been part of your journey, even just commentating on you. It's as simple as that. Julian and I, we supported you, still do. Uh, there were good days. Uh, thank you for thank you for the for the entertainment. Um, it was fantastic to see you win a world championship and all the races uh, in, in world supersport and world superbike. And it's been, been a fantastic hour. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Cheers, Tobe. Relaxed and happy with the world, Chaz took on the world through mini motos to Works Ducati Racer. A very enjoyable and informative catch up 
that I sincerely hope you enjoyed. There is a triple header run of MotoGPs coming up, so the regular crew will be back next week following the big one, the Italian Grand Prix at Mugello. I'll be back soon with more Toby Talks 2 wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you for listening. We'll speak soon. Goodbye for now. The Athletic.